Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, and I hope you do, I want to just take a moment, just encourage you to bring your Bibles with you uh, when we gather together. I don't know how you feel about writing in your Bible, but my Bible is well marked up. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, there are Bibles down in the Welcome Center that uh, I would love for you to uh, take one home with you. Uh, You can grab one of those on the way out if you do not own a a copy of God's Word. I would just like to say that there is nothing more significant that we can read or intake than God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see two mountains are contrasted, uh, and they're, they're contrasted to prove a significant point. The first mountain, Mount Sinai, represents the old covenant, and the second mountain, Mount Zion, the new covenant. And just a little background before we get into our text, roughly 1,500 years or so before Hebrews was written, a nation was formed. A people emerged out of slavery, delivered from tyranny and oppression by the miraculous power of God. Word spread throughout the region of this people as they spread into the land that God had called them to be. It was, a, it was God who had called them to be his own people. He had delivered them from slavery, and he was bringing them into that land. He was establishing them as a nation. He had brought them safely through the water and act God alone could do. And on the other side, with the enemy destroyed, the people responded in worship. God then led his people through the desert, despite their constant complaining, doubting, whining, bickering, all of the above. And he led them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God would make another covenant with them, a covenant with terms and stipulations. They were his people his old covenant representatives. Thus, he would declare how they were to be. And so we read this account in the book of Exodus, and we're going to look specifically at Exodus chapter 19 to give us some background for Hebrews chapter 12. Exodus 19, verses 9 through 12 and 16 through 20. Verse 9 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Moses was leading God's people, the Lord said, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people." And you shall set limits for, all, for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And in verse 16, on the, on, the mount, uh, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the tr- as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. Verse 22, also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Although they had been delivered from slavery, called as God's people at the foot of Mount Sinai, they are laden with a heavy burden. Their sinfulness is confronted by the holiness of God Almighty, in whose presence the earth itself trembles, and because by his word life exists or ceases. Mount Sinai trembled before the Lord, and the people were terrified. The experience at Mount Sinai left a serious question unanswered. Who can stand before a holy and righteous God, the creator of all things? This tension is carried over into the argument in our text in the book of Hebrews today. And so we will systematically make our way through the rest of chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. We'll read 18 through 21 and see that first mountain. Writer of Hebrews says, verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear. Though Mount Sinai is not used by name here, it is undoubtedly what the author has in view. The mountain represents the old covenant way of relating to God. Theologian Michael Kruger writes this of this text. He says, quote, This terrifying scene highlights God's holiness. God is the Lord. He is the creator. He is not just a better version of us. He is something wholly different, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly different than us. His standard of holiness is utterly perfect. That is why in the story of Mount Sinai, God is distant. He is not inviting the people to come close to him. He is telling them to stay away because he is holy and they are not. Old covenant worship was all about barriers, expressing the single major message that God is utterly holy and people are utterly sinful. A mountain which could not be which could be touched, a physical mountain. It could be touched, but at the risk of losing your life. Sinai is not the only picture of this given in Scripture. And, 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 and this emphasis of God's holiness, you think of other examples like the most holy place in the temple. It was known, people knew it was there, but one guy, one time a year, was allowed to enter it. And it was so terrifying that they tied a rope on him and put bells on him because if he was unholy, he was dead and they would have to pull him out. It was serious business. I also think of the the Ark of the Covenant. It was seen. It represented God's presence, but it was not to be touched. In fact, actually, 1 Chronicles 13 gives us an account of Uzziah, who, helping the Ark that he thought was falling, was struck dead in an instant because he disregarded God's holiness. I think sometimes in our culture, we can miss this point. The point that they were terrified at Mount Sinai because of the holiness of God Almighty. 
And you might think, well, this is Old Covenant, Old Testament stuff here. Aren't we under the new covenant of grace? This is true. We are under a new covenant with the same God who tells us he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. His holiness remains. So yes, we are under a new covenant with the same God. God's holiness Theologian John Frame writes, quote, his moral standard is simply himself, his person, his nature. His acts are righteous because he is a righteous God. Righteousness, therefore, is his desire, is his pleasure. The standard of our moral behavior is not an abstract concept, but an infinite person, God himself. God is holy. The scene at Sinai demonstrates the holiness of God and the utter depravity of man. I mean, it's like a scene from the Lord of the Rings, right? Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest. This is the last place you want to be. Except for this is where God has declared he will meet his people and he will reveal his holiness to them. So terrible was the sight that Moses, the chosen mediator, says that he trembled with fear. But the, reminder, or the, the, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers, Sinai is not the mountain that you have come to, nor the one that you want to return to. See, there's this draw for Jewish uh, Christians to, to look back toward the law. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, don't do that. Don't go back to that scene. That was terrifying. Yes, God is still holy, but that's not the mountain that you're running to. And he gives us a second mountain, the true and better mountain, the one that Christians are running toward, Mount Zion. We pick back up in verse 22. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel." The writer of Hebrews says, as terrifying as that scene at Mount Sinai was, that is where we were. That's where we've come from. That is not where we're heading. Where we're heading is toward Mount Zion. And this is not merely a temporal or physical location. Uh, this is the holy city of Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's eternal in nature. It is not of our world, but, but of another and, and, and he describes this gathering, this assembly that's there. There's innumerable angels gathering there, and they're feasting. God's messengers are present in this city. They're celebrating alongside God's people. The Greek word used there that's, that's uh, translated as assembly, ekklesia, is, is, is one great assembly. And this is the church. These are God's people and God's messengers. And they're, they're feasting and they're celebrating the good work that God has done. This is a glorious city. And not only is there feasting and God's people are there, but more importantly, God himself, the judge of all, he is present with his people. 
Contrasting that to Sinai, where his people were there, but they they didn't even want to touch the roots of the mountain. Like, keep this separation. God is with his people in the New Jerusalem. He's with those saints, the great cloud of witnesses that he talked about in, in the beginning of chapter 12, the righteous made perfect. It reminds me of verse two at the beginning of this chapter where he says that Jesus is the founder. He's writing our story and the perfecter of our faith. He will bring us into his righteousness. Not only is the father there, but Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, he is there. And then he ends with this kind of odd ending, his sprinkling of blood about a better testimony of Abel. What is that about? Like you're seeing all this feasting, this glorious city, and God's there, and Jesus is there, all the saints are there, and blood of Abel? What are you talking about here? Abel's blood, if you think back to Genesis chapter 4, the first murder that happened, Cain took Abel's life, and when God confronts Cain, says Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Abel's blood cried out to God for the sins of the natural firstborn, Cain, who had murdered him. Abel's blood stood as a testimony of the sinfulness of man, similar to the blood of the Passover lamb. As they were leaving the Exodus, they were to sprinkle blood over their doorpost. It was a sign, a symbol of of the forbearance of God, the patience of God toward the sinfulness of man. But, writer of Hebrews says, there is a better testimony better than the blood of Abel that cries out against our sin or better than the blood of the Passover, the lamb that says, that shows God's forbearance, his patience with our sin. There is a better, a true and better testimony. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ that says he has forgiven our sin. So look at this scene. Like he's saying, this is Mount Sinai, this, this mountain that we came to and trembled because of the holiness of God. And that same holy God has made it possible for us to join him in fellowship. And how has he done that? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the, the work and sacrifice of Christ that has made it possible for saints to join with the angels in celebration of the glory of God. This is a beautiful scene, a beautiful scene. Jesus' blood testifies of God's mercy and grace. Not delayed judgment, but the remedy of the problem. The blood of Jesus stands as a testimony of God's good work. And so these two mountains are contrasted telling a a narrative, a long story of the redemption and the glory of God, the lengths that God would go to demonstrate his holiness and redeem his people. And so then we come to the central point of the author's portion here of text where he charges, he gives a warning, and then he charges the church, cling not to the temporary things of this world, Rather, cling to that which cannot be shaken and run toward that eternal kingdom. This picture that he just painted, this this scene of glorious fellowship and worship in the presence of God, he says, that's where we're, that's, that's our goal, so let's get moving. But he said, as any good runner or, or long-distance journey, if, if you don't have to carry a burden, don't. Let go of it, because that's where we're headed, We pick back up in verse 25. 
See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so we come to the main point that he is making as he contrasts these two mountains, one glorious picture of where we're headed, one terrifying picture of where we have been. And he says, now, as we are running toward this city of God, he says, don't hold on to those things that will one day be shaken, those temporal things. And he begins this this portion of of the text by giving a warning. Looking back to Mount Sinai, those who stood at the foot of the mountain shook with terrible fear, but it was not godly fear or reverence. For the lure of the golden calf had begun already to work in their hearts of stone and quickly became a reality for them. Disregarding God's word, they fashioned for themselves something to worship which they could control. Instead of humbling themselves, they elevated themselves and worshiped lesser things, rejecting the command of the Lord, revealing their sinful, idolatrous hearts, and falling under the judgment of a holy God. The warning here is clear. Do not follow their lead. Don't walk down that path. Do not reject the word of the Lord to turn and, and, and worship false things. Now, our false things might not be a a calf made out of gold. It might be ourselves, our opinion, our comfort. It might be things of this world, things that are one day destined for the garbage dump or the burn pile. Like, those things are good things, but we sometimes make them great things and ultimate things. The warning here is clear. Cling not to the things that are shaken, which will pass away. Cling to that which cannot be shaken. Clinging to the temporal produces fear and trembling, as we saw in verse 21. Two words describe Moses' disposition, and Moses was probably the boldest of them all because he actually had been in the presence of the Lord. And, and so Moses, as the mediator, was described by two words, fear and trembling. That fear was in, in being intensely afraid or even full of dread, so much so that the emotional response had a physical effect on him. He was physically trembling, convulsing, Shaking. They were terrified. This tells me that true security cannot come from things of this world. For the things of this world have an expiration date. Everything. No matter how much, how much we love it, it has an expiration date. And we must keep that in mind. They will all fall away when the holiness of God is revealed and the earth again shakes, much like at Mount Sinai. So now we come to the initial question that was addressed before. 
If we see this glorious picture that, that the author of Hebrews has painted of what's ahead of us, but yet we see this terrifying mountain that's in front of us, who can stand on God's holy mountain? That was answered for us in Psalm 15. Psalm 15 says this, that question was asked here, O Lord, who, sa- who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes an approach up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent he who does these things shall never be moved how you uh, compare to this list right here? Walks blamelessly. No one could ever say anything of blame against you. Speaks truth, not just out your mouth, but internally in your heart, always speaking what is true. Does not slander or speak, uh, slander with his tongue or no evil to his neighbor. Like this list is here to show us this applies to none of us. We do not meet all of these credentials, these requirements. But there is one who has. John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, uh, next to the scriptures, it is the most read and purchased Christian book in, in the history of the church. If you, do not, if you have not read the Pilgrim's Progress, I would encourage you to read it. Many read it annually uh, because it's a good reminder of the journey through this life. I'm gonna read some, some excerpts from the Pilgrim's Progress, but to bring us up to speed, this, this scenario in chapter 12 is played out through Bunyan's vision of the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan describes Christian, which is the main character. Go away, Siri. <laughs> describes Christian, as the, the, who's the main character, uh, his experience at Mount Sinai. As he wanders from the narrow path in pursuit of loosening this burden that's on his back, he is convinced by, by a, a, a traveler on the path that through the means of legalism, he can remove this pack. So self-righteousness, his own moral ability. And so he, leads, he leaves the path that, that, that was leading to the narrow gate where he was sent by the character evangelist And he follows this path that leads him to Mount Sinai, where he experienced the increasing weight of his burden and the utter terror of the burning holiness of God. This terrifying experience that Christian, the character, has at Mount Sinai uh, left him fleeing legalism. And eventually, it leads him to a third hill, a hill that stands between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. We'll pick up reading in chapter three. Bunyan writes this. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up, up which Christian was to go was fenced on each side with a wall. The wall was called salvation. Therefore, it was up this highway that Christian ran, but not with, without great difficulty because of the burden of the load on his back. He ran till he came to a small hill at the top of which stood a cross, and at the bottom of which was a tomb. 
I saw in my dream that when Christian walked up the hill to the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders and it fell off his back, tumbling down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in to be seen no more. Then Christian was relieved and delighted and exclaimed with a joyful heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. For a while he stood still in front of the cross to look and wonder. It was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. He continued looking at the cross until tears began streaming down his cheeks. He stood looking and weeping. And as he stood looking and weeping, three shining ones came to him and greeted him with peace be with you. Then the first said to him, your sins are forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and dressed him with new clothing. And the third put a mark on his forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal on it. He told Christian to review it often as he went on his way and at the end of his journey to turn it in at the celestial gate. After this, they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps of joy and went on his way singing. Thus far I did come, burdened with my sin. Nor could I find relief from my grief within. Until here I came. What a place this is. Here shall be the beginning of full eternal bliss. Now my burden falls from my back forever. For the cords that bound it by grace, my grief is severed. Blessed cross, blessed tomb. Rather, most blessed be the man who there was put to shame. A shame he took for me. Bunyan describes well the small hill that stands between these two mountains, between the mountain Sinai and Mount Zion stands Calvary. There is but one way to Mount Zion through Calvary. Having described the two mountains, we now come to the author's point. Those like Christian who have stood at Calvary and looked upon the cross are now running toward Mount Zion. The question rising from Mount Sinai, who can ascend this mountain, has been answered. Christ alone. He who does these things shall never be moved. Christ, as we sing often, is our sure and steady anchor, the rock on which we stand. Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he would say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel declares that through the obedient life, substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus, Mount Zion, that beautiful picture, that celebration that the author of Hebrews says, this is where we all long, this is the greatest desire of our heart, is to be with God. It has been attained by Christ, and for those who are in Christ, it has been given by grace 
through faith. I love the fact that Bunyan says Christian leaped three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. If your heart does not leap when you hear this, you need to ask why. Because this is a joyous thing for us sojourners in this broken and, and sorrowful world. So I ask you, do you believe Jesus is better than anything else in this world? That he is the greatest prize and that he is the only way of salvation. Do you believe that? Does your life reflect that belief? Is it demonstrated? Is it declared by your words and your actions? Do you believe no one else ever could or ever has fulfilled the requirements of Mount Sinai save Christ alone? And do you cling to him above all else? The author of Hebrews concludes this portion of text with these two verses. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Clinging to the eternal also produces fear, but not in the sense of the old, that the old covenant did. It's not dread and trembling for the holiness of God, which burns just as extreme and, yes, just as deadly, is now accessible by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. This fear that it produces in the life of the believer is awe, reverence, wonder, gratitude. Do we read texts like this and does gratitude well up inside of us? Who am I that my Lord would save me? I don't deserve this. He is glorious in all his ways. Recognizing this produces two things, thankfulness and worship. Genuine worship is not done flippantly, nor is it superficial, but it flows from a grateful heart and is reverent and full of the fear of the Lord. A fear in the sense of wonder, awe, reverence, humility, gratefulness, recognition that God is God alone. I want to conclude with John Bunyan's picture that he gives of the holy city. There's a lot of ink written about the journey that Christian walks and the challenges that he faces from that point in Calvary to this point where he has just with his friend Hopeful, crossed over the river which represents death and is now standing at the bottom of this great city. 
where we pick the story back up. Bunyan writes, Now, though the city stood upon a mighty hill with its foundations higher than the clouds, the pilgrims went up with ease, agility, and speed because of the ministering spirits supporting their arms as they led them. Also, they had left their mortal garments behind them in the river, for they had gone in with them, with them, but they had come out without them. They went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they had safely crossed over the river and had such glorious companions to assist them. They spoke about the glory of the place with the shining ones, represents angels, uh, who replied that the beauty and the glory of it was inexpressible. Then they said that it was Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable comp company of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. You are, are going now, they said, to the paradise of God, where you shall see the tree of life and eat of its never fading fruits. When you come there, you shall have white robes given to you. You shall walk and talk every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth. You will not see sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things are passing away. You are now going to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the prophets, men whom God has taken away from the evil to come, and who are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. Christian and hopeful asked, what must we do in this holy place? The shining ones answered, you must receive the comforts of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers, tears, and sufferings in your journey for the king. In that place, you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the holy one. And there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, shouting, and thank thanksgiving. Him whom you desire to serve in the world, through with, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh, there your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the mighty one. There you shall enjoy your friends again, those who have gone before you, and there you shall with joy receive all those who follow you to this holy place. It is a picture of a glorious celebration. I want you to think of like a, a marathon and all the people waiting at the finish line to cheer and to, to celebrate the completion of that, of that race. Brothers and sisters, we are on a race. And the finish line of this race is that glorious kingdom. Though we have toil and trouble in this life, though we are tempted to cling to things that will one day fall away, brothers and sisters, resist that temptation. Cling to that which cannot be shaken with our eyes on a kingdom that cannot be moved. Understand that God has left us here for a purpose. And as we run this race, we have a mission. That is to boast in the glory of Christ. 
to any and all who will listen to us. So may we cling to that which is eternal. Cling to that which cannot be shaken. May we see the temporary things of this world, even the good gifts that God gives. And may we hold loosely to such things. But may we cling to Christ. White-knuckled, desperately clinging to him in any and all situations. And may we cling to Christ alone as we run our race toward Mount Zion. Amen? Let's pray. God, this morning we come to you, and and God, we are grateful for Hebrews chapter 12. God, such a glorious text that reminds us of your holiness that it is right to approach you with fear and reverence, but that fear is not dread. That fear springs from an understanding, a right understanding of who you are. So God, I pray that you would help us to to lose those, those misunderstandings that we have of you, that we have gained through experiences, things that we have heard that are not true about you, things that we have read that are not true about you. Lord, I pray that you would correct our understanding of who you are according to your word. And that, Jesus, you would give us the strength to cling to you. Give us the strength to run this race. Help us to declare the goodness of your gospel to those around us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.